want to invite you at all, all at this time to please stand as we reverence the reading of God's Word and our text in Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 11 in a message I call, Has a Nation Changed Its Gods? Jeremiah 2 and verse 11, and there it is. Has a nation changed its gods which are not gods? But my people have changed their glory for what does not profit. Be astonished, O heavens, at this. And be horribly afraid, be very desolate, says the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. May God bless the reading of his word today is my prayer. You may be seated. Our text this morning comes from the Old Testament book of Jeremiah, obviously, and his prophecy that was devoted to a time just before the nation of Israel was overrun by the armies of Babylon. Multitudes, thousands would die in the battles and the accompanying siege. Many more were carried away to Babylon to serve as slaves. And the nation, all of its government, all of its structure, all of its property, values, everything that made the nation what it was, went into ruins. It's hard for us to fathom. For most of those carried away into captivity, they would be there for 70 years under God's promise. That meant it was a life sentence in slavery, their children would return, their grandchildren, but not them. Jeremiah had the task then of proclaiming that and of ministering in a time when God was using him to proclaim that again and again and again to his people. We have seen such awful atrocities happen in Israel again and again, most notably with the Romans, of course, in the New Testament era. And uh, even uh, in more modern times, in the World War II era, when it happened to them again by a nation, Germany, Nazi Germany, that was determined to annihilate the Jewish people. But don't think that all stopped. Even today, Israel exists surrounded by nations who hate them and are determined to annihilate them. There are people who hate America, but it isn't just the hatred of a nation, but the annihilation of a people. Almost devilish in its hatred of Israel. Going back to this time, then in Jeremiah chapter 2, we have a careful explanation given to us by God through the prophet Jeremiah of why that such a terrible time of judgment was looming for the nation of Israel. In verse 2, he says, Go and cry in the hearing of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, I remember you, the kindness of your youth, the love of your betrothal, when you went after me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. And God pictures himself then as a loving husband. And he remembers the time of their betrothal. 
the time when he went and got his bride, as he would put it, Israel being spoken of as his bride, and brought them out of Egypt. And that was a very Jewish uh, kind of understanding of a wedding, which the Jewish weddings uh, uh, really just amounted to the, the bridegroom going and get his bride and taking her back then to a place that he had prepared for them. So God was saying, when I went and got you, I remember that time of love. When you came with me, when you followed me, into the wilderness, and then I brought you into a beautiful land. He would say in verse 5 then, What injustice have your fathers found in me that they have gone far from me and followed idols and have become idolaters? So while God remembered that time when Israel was devoted to him and loved him and followed him, then there came a time where they rejected him. And throughout this passage of Scripture, then, God is going to be presenting himself as a betrayed husband, a faithful husband who loved his wife, in this case Israel, who provided everything for her, and yet she was unfaithful to him and went after other gods. And God then asked, why have you done this? And we can hear the cry of a betrayed husband What have I done? Why have you done this? What iniquity was found in me, he said. What what, what did I do to deserve this kind of treatment? And that brings us then to the words of our text. Where God said in verse 10, Pass beyond the coast of Cyprus and see, and send to Kedar and consider diligently, and see if there's been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods which are not gods? But my people have changed their glory for what does not profit. Be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord. I almost call this message the sin that horrified heaven. Be horrified at this. God says, look to Cyprus. Cyprus was a land that would be to the west of Israel. Kedar to the east. Go from the west to the east. Look in any nation. All of these nations around you, they all worship false gods. And yet find one, he said, that has abandoned their gods, which are not gods at all. And yet here you have abandoned me, the true God. It's a sad day in any God-fearing nation when a people turn away from God. With the end result that those who worship false gods have more devotion to their false gods than those who worship the true God have to Him. If that sounds familiar to us today, perhaps it should. Uh, We have to notice the kind of zeal that people have who speak of Mother Earth and how they have such a desire to protect her and save her. Such a passion we see in those who favor abortion. We'll talk more about that later because it's in the text. We see how fervently people who have causes that are not God and they worship, they serve the creation more than the creator, and yet they do so with such passion, such devotion. Our consideration then of this text will fall naturally into two divisions. The horror, that's the first one, 
and then the hope. Now, bear with me. I've got some bad news to deliver. I think about Jeremiah. They didn't call him the crying prophet for nothing. He had to deliver a lot of bad news. I've got some to unload on you today as well. And it's just here. It's in the text. Starts in verse 12. Be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate. Horror. It's the response we have when we see something so awful that fear and shock come together. And it horrifies us. So God has told him to look to the west, look to the east, and now even, yes, look above to the heavens. You won't see this anywhere. And he mentions then several things that had come about as a result of their decision to turn away from God to those that were not God's. And the first thing he brings up is their foolishness. My people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Folks, we can put this real simply this morning. Humanity will never be able to find a substitute for what only God can do. We can work as hard as we want to, but there are things that only God can do. And when we turn away from God who describes himself in this passage as being the fountain of living waters, he's like an artesian well flowing constantly like a a spring that never dries. And instead, you hew for yourself broken cisterns. Now, cisterns were something that they dug out a solid rock. And you know, as I know, that there's very few rocks that will naturally just hold water. They may hold it for a little while, but it would quickly pass away. And so uh, sometimes they would dig them out, large cisterns in the ground. Sometimes this might be something that they would just carry around the house, and yet it might hold water for just a little while, just a little while. And that's only when it rained, of course. Think about how hard they had to work to produce what God offered them freely. And all of their work was in vain. Think about Galatians 5.22 where the Bible says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. I don't have time this morning to cover them all. We'll just think about the first three. Love, joy, and peace. Love, joy, and peace. The things that humanity most long for. Love, joy, and peace. We want someone to love and somebody to love us back. We want happiness and joy. We want peace and security. These are some of the basic things that humanity looks for. And look, this is the fruit of the Spirit. It's not that the other things aren't noteworthy. Gentleness, boy, that's a good one. Kindness, oh yeah, meekness, self-control. This is what the Spirit of God does for us freely. And yet all over America today, there are people who are working incredibly hard. Doing all kinds of things, trying all kinds of things. In order to get love, joy, and peace. A lot of work. A lot of work done in vain. No cistern, no matter how good it is, can ever replace a spring. And don't forget that when we're talking about that fountain of living waters, that's what Jesus promised every believer in him in John chapter 7. I'll give you a fountain of living waters. And so here are people toiling away, 
toiling away, trying to squeeze out of life and squeeze out of the world what God would freely give us and what the world cannot provide no matter how hard you squeeze it. There's an old preacher's story. Forgive me if you've heard it before. About a strong man back in the carnival days that used to go around, he'd cut a lemon in half and he'd stand up there with huge muscular arms and squeeze on that lemon. And he'd set that down after he was done. And for a dollar, you could go up then. And, and if you could squeeze more, even a drop out of there, he'd pay you $10 a drop for whatever you could do. Well, people would just go up and, they'd, you know, there for a while. Nobody could ever do it. After he had squeezed and squeezed, there was nothing left. Finally, one day, he was in a place, and there was an elderly man. elderly man went up and said, I believe I'll give it a go. He picked up that lemon, and he squeezed, and he squeezed, and he squeezed. And it was amazingly, one drop, then two, then three drops came out. Oh, everybody was astonished. They asked the elderly man what he did. He said, well, I'm a treasurer at a Baptist church. I... <laughs> Folks, even a church treasurer can't squeeze out of the world what it doesn't have to give. You can't get blood out of a tournament. Tournament, folks. It doesn't happen. We're trying to squeeze things out of the world that don't have to give. If you want love, joy, and peace, that is available to us freely and abundantly through Jesus Christ. Sex is a poor substitute for love, entertainment, and its thrills. A poor substitute for the joy and happiness we have in Jesus. Worldly, a financial success, no substitute at all for the peace of God that passes understanding. God mentions their foolishness. How hard they worked then trying to do for themselves what only God could do. He mentions their backslidings. Verse 17, have you not brought this on yourself? Well, isn't that a question? In that you have forsaken the Lord your God when he led you in the way. And now why take the road to Egypt to drink the waters of Sihor? Why take the road to Assyria to drink the waters of the river? Your own wickedness will correct you and your backslidings will rebuke you. Know therefore and see that it is an evil and bitter thing that you have forsaken the Lord your God. And the fear of me is not in you says the Lord God of hosts. In a way, this kind of continues the theme of how they forsook God as the fountain of living waters, but where before, before they were hewing themselves out broken cisterns that held no water. Now, he says, you're going down to Egypt to drink of the waters of the Nile. Now you're going down to Assyria uh, to drink of the water of the Euphrates. But God calls this backsliding. Why? Because this was a road they had traveled again and again and again and again and again. And turning from God and going to Egypt. Turning from God and going to Assyria. Later on in the passage, God would remind them that these people that they had gone to that they thought would help them. They said, they'll lead you out with your hands on your head. You know what that means? Yeah. They'll lead you out in captivity. They'll take you as slaves. Oh, what God offered them. And they turned from that to what the world offered them, slavery. 
Do we know what it's like to have some area in our life, some familiar path that we turn to again and again and again instead of turning to God? What sin calls to us with the promise of happiness and joy and peace. God says you've brought this on yourself. Your own backslidings will rebuke you. Why? You'd think we'd learn that sin never satisfies. Sin doesn't pay. It takes. There's a price, an awful price that it requires. Their foolishness, their backsliding. Then God mentions their abiding sins. For though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, yet your iniquity is marked before me, says the Lord God. How can you say, I'm not polluted, I've not gone after the bales, see your way in the valley, know what you've done. You're a swift dromedary breaking loose in her ways, a wild donkey used to the wilderness that sniffs at the wind and her desire in her time of mating who can turn away. All those who seek her will not weary themselves in her month, they will find her. And again, God continuing here this story of how he was a faithful husband who had been betrayed by his unfaithful wife. And God says their iniquity was marked before him. Why? Because they had no intention of confessing it nor forsaking it. Sin had left a stain on them that even lie soap couldn't take away. Some of you young folks may not have a clue what lye soap is. Ask your grandparents. They can tell you. You see, the reason why sin ends up marking anybody is because they refuse to repent. Because God has said if we confess our sin, and that means to agree with God, that doesn't mean that we go uh, to somebody in a robe and confess to him. No, it means that we agree to God. We agree. We express our agreement with God. God said, you've sinned. And we say to God then, yes, I have sinned. And God, I'm sorry. If we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But when we refuse to admit that what we're doing is sinful, then our iniquities remain. And there's no detergent for it. The blood of Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us, will cleanse us from all sin. Nothing else will. Nothing else will. But they respond to God then in verse 27, or verse 25 rather, withhold your foot from being unshod and your throat from thirst, but you said there's no hope. No, for I've loved aliens and after them I will go. They just said, no, God, I, I'm, I've gone this way. No matter what you say, no matter what your prophets say, so there was their foolishness their backsliding their abiding sins that they refused to turn from and then their ultimate rejection saying to a tree verse 27 you are my father and to a stone you gave birth to me they have turned their back to me and not their face but in the time of their trouble they will say arise and saves us and when we think of Saying a rock has given birth to me. Well, certainly that would apply to idolatry, but it applies equally well to sophisticated and scientific idolatry in our world today. Multitudes of people have bought into the idea that basically rocks are the source of all life on this planet. 
That we're the product of evolution rather than of our creator God. The Bible is full of messages about how God is our creator. Why? Because that is fundamental and foundational to biblical truth. To mankind having a right uh, understanding of who God is and who we are. We have to be able then to start somewhere. And the place we need to start is that it is he that has made us and not we ourselves. We are not self-created. We're not the product of chance. God has made us and we are created in his image. When we turn from this truth then, there are inevitable consequences. And they're right here in the text. Verse 30, in vain I have chastened your children. They've received no correction. Your sword has devoured your prophets like a destroying lion. Um, the prophets were telling them things they didn't want to hear. And so they used the sword. And the sword did one of two things. They either silenced them by killing them. Or they force them into submission by intimidation. The innocence, verse 34 then, also on your skirts has found the blood of the lives of the poor innocents. I've not found it by secret search. This is not something you hid, God says. This is plainly on all these things. Yet you say, because I am innocent, surely his anger shall turn away from me. Behold, I will plead my case against you because you say... I've not sinned. What is it? There's nothing wrong with it. They had killed the innocents. And that referred plainly to babies, to infants that had been killed. Oftentimes they did this in worship of their false gods. But other times they would simply dash them into pieces. Because they were inconvenient and unwanted. How can people, we might ask, become so depraved? Remember. The foundation of the value of human life is that we are created in the image of God. It is that that makes us valuable. That gives us a sense of worth. That we're created in a holy and righteous God and we're accountable to Him. When we turn then away from God and we turn back to false gods, it's not like we have to make up or wonder how it's going to turn out. The pages of history run red with the blood of people who've died under the horrors of idolatry. As mankind loses its sense of worth, self-worth, becomes more and more miserable, looks to more and more things to try to fix them, works harder and harder to build broken cisterns when they could drink from the water of life freely. The horror. The sin that horrified heaven. That men would turn away from the God who's the real God and turn to gods and no prophet. Knowing what it was doing to them. It's a sad thing when this happens to any nation. That's the horror. But thank God there's also hope. Chapter 3 verse 1. They say if a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man. Now remember this is the theme of the whole passage where God is portraying himself as the faithful husband in Israel. As the wife, the Jewish people as a people then 
like his wife who had betrayed him, been unfaithful to him. Verse 1 then, they say if a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's, may he return to her again. Would not that land be greatly polluted? But you have played the harlot with many lovers, yet return to me, says the Lord. It's the law of Moses, and if you want to look at it sometime, it's in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1 through 4, that prohibited a person if a man divorced his wife. Remember, under the law of Moses, a woman was not permitted to divorce her husband. So if a man divorced his wife, he could never, ever marry her again. That was the law, Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. Yet contrary to God's own law, God said to Israel, Return to me. Return to me. Don't we have a loving God? A faithful God? God would point them to a time then when they would return to him. I, I don't have time to look at all of those passages this morning. You can see them later. But in verse 12, he says to Jeremiah, Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return. Backsliding Israel, says the Lord. I will not cause my anger to fall on you, for I am merciful, says the Lord. I will not remain angry forever. Only acknowledge your iniquity. Acknowledge your iniquity. That you have transgressed against the Lord your God and have scattered your charms to alien deities under every green tree. And you have not obeyed my voice, says the Lord. Return, O backsliding children says the Lord, for I am married to you. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion, and I will give you shepherds according to my heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. Obviously, the response will be a remnant. One from a city, two from a whole family. Put it down plainly and simply in Israel's day so long ago and in our day in modern America. It is not the majority who will turn to God. It is not the majority who will accept God's offer of repentance. It is not the majority who will stand before God and raise their head toward heavens or bow their head in shame and say, God, forgive me, I have sinned. It is not the majority who will do that. It might just be one from a city, but there will be one. It might be two from a family, but there will be two. God was going to call a remnant unto himself, and they would come. To the backsliding children, then, the primary application of the passage, God was not calling to a people who had never had a relationship with him at all, but to a people who had turned away from him and been unfaithful to him. And the first thing that we have to do today if we find ourselves in that situation is to do what God told us to do and acknowledge our iniquity. It sounds so simple. I don't know why it's so hard for us to get to sometimes. Just to say, I've sinned. I've sinned. God, I've been wrong. There is no forgiveness for sin that we don't acknowledge as sin. If we're arguing with God, say to these things, well, God, these are really good, nothing wrong with them. We've done no wrong, we're innocent, that's what they were doing. There's nothing to be done unless you repent. But I'm here to remind you today that it doesn't matter how far you strayed from God or how long you've been gone. God is still 
before you saying, return to me. Return to me. Acknowledge your sin and return to me. We can also make application from this great passage to those who have never trusted Jesus Christ at all. Salvation from your sins begins at the same place. There is absolutely one thing that has to happen before anybody has ever been saved or ever will be saved. And that is they have to confess that they are a sinner. They have to admit that they have sinned against God. They have to see themselves then as a sinner in need of salvation. Jesus said it best. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It's say, oh, Brother Rich, you don't know what kind of a sinner I am. I don't have to. God does. And he calls to you because he loves you. Jesus Christ died for you. But it all begins here with acknowledging your sin. Jesus Christ himself in Mark chapter 2 and verse 14 says, Now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. You repent and believe the gospel. That's what Jesus preached. Repent. That means turn from your sins and turn to God. We turn from our sins. We turn to Jesus Christ in believing that his death, burial, and resurrection is sufficient for my salvation. We call on him as a sinner and ask him to forgive us and to be our Savior. And he does. Long ago, Jesus said to a man, you must be born again. Have you been born again? Once then, people turn to God, and whatever that means, whether it means they turn to Him for salvation or turn back to Him from their backsliding, God gave them a glorious promise, verse 15. And I'll give you shepherds according to my heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. Folk, this is our work today. This is, uh, puts its hand on the pulse of us here in America today. Can a nation, will a nation change its gods? Well, America is rapidly doing that right before our eyes it's happening everywhere we see all of the political divides and all the cultural unrest and everything that's happening what are we seeing we're seeing a nation changing its God they're turning away from the God that is their glory and turning to gods that are no prophet we live in a nation that is Turning away from the fountain of living waters to hew for itself cisterns, broken cisterns that hold no water. If that live, means we live in a day where God is calling to people and they'll come. Thank God it's a lot more still than one in a whole city. Amen. At least in, in our city. Thank God for that. But there are other places and other cities where we might wonder if. The angel was sent to find ten righteous people in that city. We wonder if they could. Cities in this country. And if it's not that way right now, it could be that way very quickly. How do we turn it around? We turn it around one or two at a time. I'm a firm and complete believer that God is calling us to go out to our neighbors, to our neighborhoods, our friends, our co-workers, one or two at a time. 
But here in this great passage, then, we have a highlight of something that God values, something that God placed incredible value on. I'll call you back. It might just be one from a city, but it'll be one. It might be two from a family, and it'll be two. And he says, I'll put you in a land, and I'll teach you the way that you should go. And if you read on in the passage, he's going to talk about how they'll raise up children and, and, and grandchildren to serve him. And a lot of that passage projects our attention to the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. I don't have time to preach that today. Uh, I know I said that a lot this morning. I'm sorry. I just had a big message. And here we are. Got a simple choice today. You can keep on trying to wring out of this world what doesn't have, it doesn't have to give you. No matter how hard you wring, it's, it's not going to give you love, joy, and peace. It's not. Only God can give you that. Or you can turn to the fountain of living waters. That choice is yours. Let's stand together, please.